All right, we are back. You know, on Radio Parallax, we search for a certain type of headline, I guess you might say, and a classic Radio Parallax headline caught our eye a couple days ago. To wit, Penn Gillette apologizes to Newfoundland. That's what we would call a real grabber. According to the story, Penn Gillette made some disparaging remarks about the people from Newfoundland, of which I believe he attributed his own ancestry and I, I guess, you know, when you have a certain ancestry, you're entitled to, well, at least as the saying goes, you're entitled to insult your own people. Well, that's always been our experience, that some of your own people may not agree. Case in point, you might say, was uh, in the obituary columns of the, the late, great Dick Gregory. I think we mentioned the passing of Mr. Gregory a week or two ago. He certainly was a breakthrough comic, being the first black guy to... Go mainstream in America. Dick Gregory did cut quite a figure for many decades in America. Broke a lot of ground. He, uh, he decided, according to his obituaries, that uh, laughing was a better way out of difficulty than crying, noting that once a man laughs with you, he can't laugh at you. Mr. McMillan notes, unfortunately, this has not necessarily been demonstrated by Radio Parallax because while people do oftentimes laugh with us, they apparently once in a while do laugh at us. But nevertheless, we are doing the best we can. We made in passing mention of the obituary of Mr. Gregory that appeared in the week. The, 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 the Economist decided to devote uh, an entire page, as they do, to their obituaries. Said the distinguished British publication, Gregory's early wisecracks were lame and desperate. His bed was so crowded he needed a bookmark to keep his place. His home was so poor that the rats had to sleep six in a bed also. The magazine notes that when he pushed his way onto the Playboy Club in Chicago and walked onto the stage, he was greeted with an instant catcall of nigger. Gregory warmly claimed fictitiously that each such insult earned him a $50 bonus and that his nearby restaurant had the same name, so the publicity was especially welcome. He did, in fact, make that the name of his first book, An Autobiography, which in 1964 earned him the rather princely advance of $200,000. When Gregory's mother objected to his use of that word in the title of the book, he said, Mom, whenever you hear that word, you'll know they're advertising my book. Dick Gregory hated the N-word euphemism, arguing, let's pull it out of the closet, let's lay it out there, let's deal with it, let's dissect it. This, of course, was long before the advent of black entertainment television, where it seems to comprise every third word. This correspondent did see a talk by Mr. Dick Gregory right here on the UC Davis campus back in the 1970s. He was a political activist all the way back then. He went on numerous hunger strikes where I think for, you know, months at a time all he did was drink fruit juice. He's pretty skinny, but he was hanging in there. Among his many crusades was vegetarianism. Dick Gregory decried bigots as whitey, insisting that the struggle was not about black against white, but about right against wrong. He noted that for all America's evils and faults, you can still reach through the forest and see the sun. But we don't know yet whether that sun is rising or setting for our country. Something we frankly still wonder about. Something I personally have always wondered as to whether it was pointing toward a setting sun was the fact that we seem to love these slasher, torture, porn, horrible horror movies in this country. Apparently the jackass that once produced the Texas Chainsaw Massacre passed away recently. Although we've been unable to verify it 
here at Radio Parallax, we do believe that he is currently burning in hell. Then again, he could have made a horrible movie about murdering people with chainsaws, and if nobody went to see it, he wouldn't have been very successful. So what's up with that? Our answer, we don't know. Something else that makes us wonder about whether it's a setting sun in America is the fact that <sighs> corporations keep buying other corporations to become mega corporations. And nobody seems to think this is something that should be stopped. I mean, we have a commerce department. We have the idea there should be free trade. We have an idea that there should be, you know, a, a healthy exchange of goods and services, blah, blah, blah. And yet, one mega corporation buys up another, creates this oligopoly that dominates an entire industry all across the board, and, I don't know, they get a tax write-off for doing it. We're not economists enough to know whether this is the natural course of things and whether in the end that's maybe better than chaos. I don't think so. It's not what I was taught in school, but I don't know. Maybe in reality it is. We just don't know. We would note that Teddy Roosevelt didn't think it was such a great idea, and he was a pretty good guy. I don't know. When I read that, you know, United Technologies is buying Rockwell, I mean, <laughs> United Technologies itself, this mega corporation of a bunch of corporate mergers, so is Rockwell, and now one's buying the other. The Economist notes that United Technologies Corporation, UTC, an American conglomerate that makes Pratt & Whitney engines and other aerospace parts, has now announced it has agreed to buy Rockwell Collins, an avionics firm, for $30 billion. Although this is one of the biggest ever mergers in the aerospace business, the magazine notes the deal is just the latest in a series of supplier tie-ups this year. And the article goes into how Airbus and Boeing both uh, buy things from suppliers and kind of outsource a lot of the work that they do, which, I don't know, can that be good? article on The Economist mentions several of the biggies in the aerospace firm, noting that this merged UTC and Rockwell will have annual revenues of $62 billion, which compares to Airbus at $80 billion and Boeing at $96 billion. Somewhere along the way, Boeing has gotten angry about this possible acquisition, which I guess is not confirmed yet, UTC of Rockwell, and has threatened to lobby regulators to stop the deal on competition grounds. And evidently Airbus isn't too happy because this new corporation is going to make its engines. And the building of planes by Airbus is apparently being held up right now by the construction of engines. I don't know, I think we're getting in over our head. We better come back to stuff we know a little better. Like beer, which opens the way to this week's edition of The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. According to The Week, it was a good week last week for barroom diplomacy after the Scottish brewery Brewdog announced plans to open a bar that will straddle the border between the U.S. and Mexico and serve brews from both countries. Said brewery founder James Watt, I guess in this case he's not the inventor of the steam engine, beer is a universal language. And no, Mr. Reynolds, we don't know how Trump's wall will interfere with this future <laughs> providing of international beers at the border. We do hope that Mr. Trump will plan some accommodation for this. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for 
workers in St. Louis with the news that that city has become one of the rare cities to lower its minimum wage last week from $10 an hour to $7.70. A new state law took effect which requires Missouri cities to abide by the statewide minimum wage. Maybe we should boycott St. Louis. What's wrong with those people? And it was an ugly week this past week for people who suffer from jet lag with the news that the Australian carrier Qantas hopes to start offering nonstop flights from Sydney to London and New York in the year 2020 using new ultra-long-range aircraft. The Sydney to London route would be the longest direct flight in the world at 20 hours and 20 minutes without a stopover. But it is noted that without a stopover, it would save travelers, well, four hours from stopping in Bangkok or God knows where. You can do a lot in Bangkok in four hours. I think that pretty much dictates what our outro music is going to be for today's program. Although we may have to stretch it to one night in Bangkok. And you know, whenever we get too bogged down in political things and sad things, which are often the same thing, we like to fly off and talk about some science topics. Let's, let's do that today, shall we? Here's one. They've apparently found a new skull of a Triceratops. Surprisingly, this iconic dinosaur has only had three skulls found of it previously, even though it's one of everybody's favorites with that, you know, big horn above its nose like a rhinoceros and then those two big prongs above its eyeballs to presumably allow it to fight Tyrannosaurus, etc. According to the article about this recent uh, geologic find in Colorado, uh, they quoted an authority as saying we don't really know why it is the current specimen is smaller than previous ones. They note that although we have hundreds of Triceratops from the American West, we have only three good skulls. This latest skull has apparently been torn apart by a predator, at least they speculate that may be the case, and so they note they may be looking for some Tyrannosaurus teeth embedded in the bones. Good luck with that. One side light to the story is that when they uncovered these bones by accident at a construction site, they took steps right away to protected from, you know, grave robbers and people that would come by to grab souvenirs off of it. And, thankfully, they were evidently successful in that endeavor. The good people in Colorado currently have security patrolling the site 24 hours a day. That's a story we'd like to continue to follow as it develops. Maybe we should say a word or two more about the crash of the Cassini spacecraft into the planet Saturn to take place Friday of this week. One of our correspondents directed us earlier this week to a live feed taking place from the Griffith Observatory, uh, going back and chronicling some of the high moments uh, of this spectacularly successful mission. I think two of the biggies that would make anybody's list were what the Cassini mission discovered about two of Saturn's most singular moons. First and foremost, Titan, a very big moon, a moon bigger than the planet Mercury, a moon with an atmosphere thicker than we have here on planet Earth, also composed, surprisingly, mainly of nitrogen. Titan has intrigued astronomers ever since they discovered, uh, I think back in the 50s it was, that it had a thick atmosphere surrounding it. Uh, it's a bright orange color, apparently because the atmosphere contains smog, <laughs> not unlike that which is found in, you know, a bad day in Los Angeles. 
these organic molecules in the uh, in the atmosphere of Titan um, make it uh, rather opaque. So unfortunately, when we got our first look at it, courtesy of the Voyager 2 spacecraft, which was preceded by the Pioneer 11, I guess, to give credit where credit is due, uh, they did try to get a picture of Titan, and all they saw was a big, fuzzy, orange ball. Now, good astronomers like Carl Sagan did the math on the temperatures and the pressures and whatever, and they concluded that it was highly probable that these organic molecules on Titan might be able to exist in three different states, liquid, solid, and gas. This would create the possibility of some very interesting things going on in the atmosphere and surface of Titan, because like planet Earth, where coincidentally we have the right temperatures and pressures to have water exist in three different states, solid, liquid, and gas, well, it may well be that in the colder regions you find solid ice on Earth or hydrocarbons on Titan. You might find liquids in intermediate temperatures, and you might find gas in the atmosphere, which would precipitate into a rain. Now, the rain on Titan is going to be a whole lot colder than here on Earth, something like negative 200 degrees. And it wouldn't be water at all. It would be hydrocarbons falling from the sky. At least that's what the math told them. So imagine how cool it was when Cassini got out to Saturn and it launched a separate space probe, the Huygens probe it was called, whose mission was to penetrate the Titan atmosphere through a, a shield like we use on, on spacecraft here on Earth, a heat shield, because it was coming in pretty hot and fast. Uh, after which, it was to pop a parachute, fire up its cameras, and photograph what it saw as it came down to land. It did this in a rather spectacular fashion, and we would encourage you to listener to go uh, to your computer and pull up the imagery that NASA's had up there for quite a long time, showing the descent of, of the Huygens spacecraft and how it passed over eerily familiar landscapes. Looking down, you could see hills, you could see valleys, you could see what obviously were liquid eroded regions, as we would have in river valleys here and you know in mountains on Earth. Only on Titan is a different ball game. The liquid was ethane or methane, and the mountains were probably composed of ice, which of the temperatures on Titan is as hard as a rock. And uh, when the Huygens probe finally landed with a crunch on what looked like a stream bed, what on Earth would be water-eroded pebbles, evidently on Titan, were was ice-eroded er ice pebbles that were eroded by the methane flowing over them. Pretty amazing. But it didn't stop there. Uh, I, don't, I don't have the exact number of passes that Cassini made over Titan, but it was a lot of them, you know, something like 50. It had, in essence, a radar device on it, which allowed it to look down through the smoggy, foggy atmosphere to see what the surface looked like. And what do you know? There were big, giant lakes all over the place. Big lakes. Lakes the size of Lake Ontario here on Earth. And when they analyzed the, geograph the, when they analyzed the geography of how these lakes fit together and did some estimates of atmospheric circulation, they came to conclude that probably where a couple of these lakes join up, there would, at certain times of the year, be giant whirlpools 
such as found here on Earth in the Straits of Messina between Sicily and, uh, and mainland Italy. I don't believe they were ever able to confirm that uh, on subsequent missions. I guess we're going to have to go back and take a look. But they did note, in peering down with their radar at the lake surfaces, that they changed from orbit to orbit. One pass to the other would show that islands were appearing and disappearing. And no, they still haven't quite figured that one out. There's some thought that it may be a mass of bubbles being, being you know, erupting from below. Uh, there's probably some interesting geology going on because, you know, there's undoubtedly some heat from, from uh, well, the stretching and, and pulling that takes place, you know, as Titan gets further and closer to the planet Saturn. This same phenomenon surprised scientists earlier when they first flew by the Galilean moons of Jupiter, and instead of finding dead, cold worlds like our own moon, holy crap, Io had a massive erupting volcanoes. The moon Europa had ice cracks all over its surface where obviously water was welling up between the cracks and free refreezing and icebergs were forming and turning upside down. And, and the largest moon in the entire solar system, Ganymede, which is even slightly bigger than Titan, which is bigger than Mercury, had across its surface what looks like the tracks of snowmobiles where huge grooves are formed evidently from some internal heat process and um well they're going to have to go back and and study titan again there there are some plans in the drawing board to put a boat to land on one of the uh the lakes or possibly drift through the atmosphere with a balloon they should do this because this is just really cool stuff and to all you people out there who think this is a big waste of money to go up into space, I would hasten to remind you that the military industry is going to get your money anyway. And if they're going to get your money anyway, isn't it better to do really cool science with it than to build bombs and blow the arms off of people? We don't mean that as an entirely rhetorical question. We, we think you should ask that question. Isn't, isn't that smarter? Isn't that a better thing to do? And when you learn about other worlds, like Mars and Titan, and Venus, and you learn about their atmospheres and their geology, you now have an ability to look back and see the Earth with a new set of eyes, because, as we like to point out on Radio Parallax, it's difficult to see the picture when you're inside the frame. The great Carl Sagan, mentioned a moment ago, um, had some breakthroughs, which we've cited on the show before, but I think we'll cite again, when they sent probes out to Mars. Mars is a very thin atmosphere. Marsh, the Martian atmosphere is the equivalent of the Earth's atmosphere up at 100,000 feet, which means almost no atmosphere at all. But there is enough to create dust devils, according to New Scientist magazine, the current edition, which I'm happy to segue into this discussion. Well, correction, the August 19 issue. Scientists now think that Mars has millions of dust devils on its surface every day. This is based on some data using the Mars landers, which measures the barometric pressure on the Martian surface. Brian Jackson at Boise State University in Idaho has used, and his colleagues have concluded that uh, on any given day, a dust devil pops up every square kilometer on the Martian surface. And on the average, they're about 13 meters across. That's about 40 feet for folks here in America. About 10 times the number we thought were on the Martian surface. And uh, it just shows how you got to go someplace to really assess what's going on. 
And so it was when the Cassini spacecraft got a look at the moon Enceladus. There were some surprises. Voyager, when it flew by Saturn, had noted that Enceladus was really white. It was probably, I believe, the whitest, most reflective object, large object anyway, in the entire solar system. And they weren't sure why that was. Well, pretty sure we know now. It's because Enceladus, which is a small moon, it's only one-fourth the size of, you know, our own moon, uh, is very geologically, that's not quite the right term, but let's use it anyway, geologically active. It has geysers spurting out near its southern hemisphere, going up into space, freezing, and then despite the low gravity, falling back onto the surface of the moon, in essence, resurfacing it regularly to make it as white as a cue ball. And in another one of Cassini's triumphs, during one of its orbits, it was programmed to, to whiz past Enceladus and, at the right moment, in essence, take a sniff of what it could find in the wispy areas of space around the moon. They concluded, and I, I can't vouch for the science, but they concluded that the compounds they were finding were indicative of the fact that the water deep below this ice ball, which was getting hot enough to bust through it and create geysers, was evidently interacting with rock down deeper than that, which means we may have the conditions necessary for life, since we believe that here on planet Earth, life first arose near hydrothermal vents in the ocean, where you have hot water and hot rock interacting. And does lead people to speculate that, well, if it happened here, maybe it happened on Enceladus. If we went down there and sent a probe through that icy crust into the ocean that we're sure lies below it, wow, what might we find? Well, not to be a spoil sport, but most likely hot brine. But maybe, just maybe, we could find life. There's certainly high hopes for this on the somewhat closer moon of Jupiter, Europa which, again, like Enceladus, has an ice ball surface, unfortunately no atmosphere, but, well, you don't really need one if the ice is, you know, insulating your ocean that's down deep. Um, there has been some evidence from the Hubble spacecraft observations, and I believe some telescopes here on Earth, that, that um, Europa, too, may be erupting some geysers analogous to Enceladus. Why Enceladus is so active is just, you know, an intriguing question. It's much smaller than Europa, Europa is about the size of our moon. But again, why don't we go there and find out? Let's land some probes. There's quite a few optimists that think that if we could put down on the surface of Europa or Enceladus, um, the stuff laying around on the surface should tell you whether down deep in the cracks below the ice there's life. You know, frankly, I was kind of PO'd, which I mentioned the show years ago to see a, a NASA video about a possible space mission using, I think, nuclear technology that was going to land on Europa, and basically set up a giant drilling rig, which would melt its way down through the ice and get into the ocean below. But uh, I think it kind of died in the drawing board. Again, wouldn't you rather see that than some fancy new cruise missile? You know, and speaking of weather, and, and you know, let's, let's return the science back here to Earth as we close up. Did, did anybody notice the images posted on the web that compared the catastrophic Hurricane Andrew well, I believe 1992 to the current Hurricane Irma in terms of size and ferocity. Andrew caused quite a bit of damage. 
uh, back in the day. I think in no small part because uh, the Air Force and others, for some inexplicable reason, elected to leave their planes on the ground where they could be smashed to bits instead of flying them away. But it, it is rather eerie to see that Andrew looks like this puny little storm compared to this monster of Irma. And does this mean that the Earth's atmosphere is getting hotter, as people have predicted, and that hurricanes would be getting bigger, as people predicted? Well, maybe. And if anybody's seen Al Gore's new movie, uh, would you please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com and tell us what you think. We have not yet had a chance to take it in. And when we hear that it's a little disappointing, God knows it's an important message to keep uh, to keep putting before the public, and Al Gore's doing what he can. But, uh, you know... Al, keep it interesting. Don't make us bring Don Rose back to do his Al Gore impression. You know, and as we close, we still haven't done justice, I think, to uh, the trip that Mr. Merlin and I and others took up to Madras, Oregon, to witness nature's, well, certainly one of nature's greatest spectacles, that of the total solar eclipse. We probably should yet again thank the good people of Madras for the welcome mat they laid out for the visiting hordes and the great job they did in crowd management and providing services for all. I am pleased to note that uh, Radio Parallax's friend, Julie Credence, formerly of Kentucky Public Radio, uh, in no small part due to our urging, did go down to witness the eclipse, in her case, in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. And she was uh, quite enthused at, at what she saw. And, and, you know, maybe we'll try to bring her on a future program to, uh, to talk about what she saw. Julie certainly can, uh, can tell a tale. Well, one, one final bit of Eclipse news that's good news is we apparently underestimated uh, how far you'd be able to see that next Eclipse up in the, in the, in the on-deck circle, July 2nd, 2019. In a misreading, apparently, one of the eclipse charts, uh, yours truly thought that the eclipse would end in Chile, but actually, it looks as though you'll be able to see it in Argentina, maybe on the other side of the Andes, which would probably be where we're going to be in July of 2019, if we travel for that one. problem with seeing an eclipse in the middle of Argentina in July is it's winter, it's cold. But we'll check out a little further and report back to you. It may be okay. Of course, now Mr. Millen is lobbying to use as outro music Don't Cry For Me Argentina instead of One Night in Bangkok. All right, this executive decision here. Uh, I did like Evita very much. Best play I ever saw. Patti LuPone is awesome. But it's not exactly a peppy number to go out with. And frankly, I think we need one. At any rate, you've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We do recommend that you enjoy at some point in your life at least one night in Bangkok, and we'll see you next week at the same time.
play at this level is no ordinary venue. It's Iceland or the Philippines. 